COVID's not gone. I did approach this topic with a little bit of angst and trepidation. Missy has been labeled as a Kawasaki mimic. Don't be confused that a rapid heart rate is a hyperdynamic heart. Overall, this condition is extremely rare. Certain complications can be severe. Get help. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We hope that you are all doing well for this podcast. I personally am really looking forward to this discussion. We are going to circle back to COVID. It is inevitable we are starting to see signs of maybe a fifth wave here as we approach the holiday season in North America. But importantly, we're going to do something different with COVID and something that we actually rarely touch on here at CCPEM, and that's its relation to pediatrics and a pediatric-related critical illness with respect to COVID-19. But before doing so, as we've done so many podcasts, introducing my amazing co-hosts here, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez. And gentlemen, as we start off this podcast, it is just prior. We are recording just prior to Thanksgiving, and I think I could speak for all of us in really expressing our sincere gratitude and thanks to all of our listeners, especially for the last 20 months, whether you're physicians, APPs, RNs, respiratory therapists, intensivists, hospitalists, any type of resuscitationist out there, you have done a truly inspirational job on the front lines here at our COVID-19 pandemic. And we can't be more grateful and privileged to stand with you on those front lines. So our sincerest thanks to you. And gentlemen, I'm going to say a personal thanks to the three of you for just over this past year, over the past 20 months, you have done an amazing job educating all of us with respect to so many aspects with critical care resuscitation. I'm truly grateful for your efforts. So with that, John, I'm going to ask how you're doing. Well, it's hard to follow that. I'm doing great. And I agree, we do have a lot to be thankful for these past two years. It's been incredible to see, and I something I'm thankful for, to see how much we have grown in medicine, how we have pulled together 100%. This has been a once in a lifetime, once, probably a couple lifetimes experience, but also thankful to the three of you as the young guy on this podcast. I have three incredible role models to look up to, and this is an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Well said. Well, Peter, I'm going to turn to you. How goes it as we start to this recording this podcast? So just incredibly thankful for the team that I get to work with, not just on this podcast, but also at the hospital. And I think you spoke about the amazing resuscitation teams that we get to work with, both in the emergency department as well as the ICUs and their commitment to patient caring. And that's inspirational. And I'm thankful for that. Really well said. Dr. Rodriguez, how are things? I am equally thankful for all of you, for the three of you, for the vaccine, which has really transformed our lives. And I am thankful for, yeah, just everybody. I mean, as the three of you put it, COVID has united people on the front line. And it's been a harrowing coming up on two years now, but it's been wonderful to see people unite and fight against this disease. And hopefully we are turning the corner and yeah, I'm thankful for all of you. 
Agreed. And we know that many of our colleagues are going to be working this holiday weekend. And we hope that all of you listening, whether you're working this holiday weekend or upcoming towards the end of December, early January, that you are able to find a little bit of time to connect with those that you love and really express your appreciation and gratitude to them for helping all of us get through this pandemic. Well, John, some of the latest news and latest developments, we've really rolled forward with vaccinations for our pediatric populations. Some of us have kids in that 5 to 11 range that have started to get vaccinated. And I think that's a great way to lead into the segment that you're going to take us through here from an education standpoint with some pediatric-related COVID-19 illness. So what have you got on tap for us this podcast? Well, thanks, Mike. And yes, I did approach this topic with a little bit of angst and trepidation as pediatric emergency medicine is not something I practice necessarily on a daily basis, but it is part of our specialty. And whether you work in an academic center or community center, it's very possible that you're going to be taking care of kids. And part of our job as emergency physicians is to not only know the common things, but to know the very rare, but serious and life-threatening diseases. And this is going to be one of them. And this review is based off of an article written by Michael Gottlieb, as well as a few other emergency physicians that is titled multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children with COVID-19. It was published just this past month in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, and is a really great review of just the basics as well as need to know information about how to tackle this somewhat elusive and to be honest, somewhat rare disease, but certainly something as emergency physicians we need to know about. So a little bit of background about this disease, which you'll often here referred to as Miss C. So multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is the condition among pediatric patients with COVID-19 infection. And it really is a little bit different than what we're used to seeing in adults in that it results in inflammation of a variety of organ systems, but can include the heart, lung, brain, kidneys, GI system, skin, basically multi-system organ involvement. Now, in terms of dipping back to something to be thankful for is that overall, this condition is extremely rare. In fact, it's estimated to occur in approximately 300 patients in a total of 100,000 children who are infected. So 300 out of 100,000 infections in kids, that's not a lot. And so this is definitely something we've lucked out on that COVID hasn't touched our kids in the same way it has our adults. But from an onset standpoint, it's usually delayed from the initial infection. So two to six weeks after the initial COVID-19 infection, and it affects really the age range somewhere between seven and 11 years old, but it can happen under the age of 21. Now, certain complications can be severe, which can include cardiogenic or distributive shock. So it's important that we kind of at least know the basics about what to look for when that patient comes into ED, how to work it up and what our initial resuscitation should be. So that's going to be the goal for the next 15 minutes or so. So Mike, why don't you walk us through the history and physical exam? What should we be looking for in that young child who was diagnosed with COVID-19 as they walk through the ED? Well, thanks, John. That was an outstanding background, way to lay the foundation for this discussion. And in terms of when we should be thinking about it, well, I'd honestly say that we probably think about COVID any patient who walks into the emergency department with any type of symptoms that could be related 
to an inflammatory or an influenza-like illness. But when we talk specifically about Miss C, when do we want to start thinking about it? Well, in the pediatric population. And the clinical presentation is often variable, and it can certainly mimic other inflammatory diseases. And I think the one that we're most attuned to it mimicking is Kawasaki's disease. And we'll get into this in just a moment. When we talk about the clinical presentation, probably GI symptoms really predominate the clinical presentation for Miss C. In fact, when you look at the literature, GI symptoms are present in anywhere from 60 almost to 100% of patients, depending on the article you read. In addition to GI symptoms, patients or their parents may report that the pediatric patient has lethargy, maybe a little altered, and can also have respiratory symptoms that we would think of as consistent with COVID-19. So shortness of breath, cough, upper respiratory symptoms like sore throat. Now, when patients are moving along the sicker spectrum, so they're becoming more critically ill, this is when we're going to start to see symptoms consistent with myocardial dysfunction. About half of patients present with symptoms related to myocardial dysfunction, a little bit more with cardiogenic shock and then evidence of multi-organ failure. Now, getting back to what I just mentioned, differentiating and thinking about other inflammatory diseases such as Kawasaki's, there are some key distinctions. And typically, Miss C has been labeled as a Kawasaki mimic. But when we're talking about kids with Miss C, they tend to be a little older. So usually, in general, greater than seven. GI symptoms predominate. These kids also have elevated inflammatory markers. So our CRPs, their D-dimers, their ferritin is elevated and also have concomitant low lymphocyte count along with low platelets. Well, that's in contrast to what we know all too well, board exams, pediatric emergency medicine, thinking about Kawasaki's disease, whereas in Kawasaki's, the kids are a little bit younger. So generally less than five. GI symptoms in contrast are usually not present with Kawasaki disease. And kids with Kawasaki's disease often more commonly have a leukocytosis and a normal platelet count in contrast to those that have MIS-C. And as many of us are familiar, Kawasaki's disease, there's a lower incidence of myocardial dysfunction and overt circulatory shock compared with kids that actually have MIS-C. Now, just a few final physical exam findings before we get on to diagnostic testing. Conjunctivitis, mucous membrane inflammation is common also can see variable forms of skin rash consistent with, say, what we see often in adults with COVID from a cutaneous manifestation. Those GI symptoms with abdominal tenderness, and depending on how severe and what organ is involved, they may present with altered mental status, confusion, encephalopathy, and a little bit more rare seizure disorder. So John, that's kind of what we're talking about with respect to history and some exam findings. Let's roll into diagnostic testing and turn things over to Rob for a review of diagnostic tests. Yeah, so thanks, Mike. Most pediatric EDs have developed algorithms for this disease, but if you don't have one readily available at your institution, you should start by dividing kids into two groups, the toxic-appearing kid versus the non-toxic-appearing child. And in the toxic group, the sick looking kid, you're really going to want to have broad diagnostic testing, including a CBC, metabolic panel, a SED rate, CRP, coags, if you have those available. We all know there's a shortage of blue top tubes lately. D-dimer, troponin, a BNP, and ferritin, fibrinogen, procalcitonin, and then COVID testing to confirm the diagnosis as well. 
If on the other hand, the kid is well appearing and you're concerned about MISC, there's recommended a two-step approach by the American College of Rheumatology. The first step, step one, is to obtain a CBC, a metabolic panel, a CRP, and a SED rate. And if the CRP is greater than five or the SED rate is greater than five, plus their absolute lymphocyte count is less than 1.5, or their platelet count is less than 150, or their sodium is less than 135, or they have hypoalbuminemia, then you proceed to step two, in which you send the full panel that was previously mentioned for the toxic appearing kid. That would include, again, troponin, D-dimer, ferritin, BNP, and procalcitonin testing. So high inflammatory markers in this disease are very common. Up to 92% of patients with MISC will have at least four abnormal diagnostic blood tests. Moving on to cardiovascular testing, these patients should have an EKG, and you're looking for conduction blocks in these patients. They can commonly have AV or bundle branch blocks. You also should do a chest X-ray, which can reveal cardiomegaly in up to 60% of patients, as well as pulmonary edema, pleural fusions, and occasionally an ARDS appearing type picture. For sicker kids also, you should order an echocardiogram. And for this, you're looking for the reduced left ventricular ejection fraction, which will be in about half of patients. You're looking for pericardial effusions. You're looking for MR. And you're specifically looking out for coronary artery aneurysms and signs of myocarditis. In adults, we're not typically measuring coronary artery diameters, but in the pediatric population, this can be done and is recommended. So those are the basic testing profiles that you should consider in these patients. Again, first off, dividing them into sick versus non-sick, and in the non-sick group, proceeding with that two-step algorithm of inflammatory markers first. So Peter, what should we be doing for these patients in the emergency department? Tell us their resuscitation and their management. You got it, Rob. You set it up very well. Obviously, for the non-sick kids, that's a different issue. They don't need resuscitation and management. But for the toxic child, we're going to need to step up. And we're going to manage those children in the same fashion as we would as if they had septic shock. So we're going to consider our IV fluid resuscitation. We're going to give broad spectrum antibiotics to start because we don't know the complete etiology of these kids who are in shock states. We're also going to reach for our vasoactive agents to manage our vasoplegia or cardiogenic shock. So think about that. So vasoplegia versus cardiogenic shock. So that really means that one of our bedside tools is going to come into play here. And that bedside tool is going to be ultrasound. And so we're going to focus really at the heart and at the IVC, looking at combination about how much fluid we would use and whether or not there is diffuse hypokinesis. And so I would just make sure that with children in particular, they tend to have rapid heart rates. Don't be confused that a rapid heart rate is a hyperdynamic heart because they can actually have a rapid heart rate and have poorly functioning EF, right? A low EF. So just make sure we look at that critically. And then again, we want to use that to distinguish vasodilatory shock versus our cardiogenic etiology. 
The critical difference in MIS-C treatment compared to sepsis resuscitation is the utilization of IVIG, so intravenous immunoglobulin. It's considered a first-line therapy for these patients. And so I think that that's important for us to acknowledge and utilize. The dose here is going to be two mg per kilogram per day, and that's going to be divided in three doses for 10 days. So think IVIG, two mg per kg per day, going to be divided three doses for a total of 10 days. Now, when we talk about steroids, unlike our adult population, glucocorticoid treatment is less often used, still used, but it's less often so. So we're looking at methylprednisolone, two mg per kg per day, divided into twice a day dosing. So again, prednisone, two mg per kg per day, divided into twice day dosing. And that's going to go on for about two to four weeks if you choose to give it. Now, anticoagulation. So therapeutic anticoagulation should be initiated, and we would ideally use Lovenox if there is evidence of either acute thrombosis or if the EF is less than 35%, again, hearkening back to this bedside ultrasound and then get a full documented echo to estimate that accurately, or if there's evidence of coronary aneurysm on that echo. So again, we're going to anticoagulate with Lovenox for acute thrombosis, for reduced EF less than 35%, or any evidence of coronary aneurysm on echo. Remember, we're worried about the dilation of the coronary arteries that Rob mentioned earlier. We're going to avoid aspirin in patients who are thrombocytopenic. Anybody with a platelet count less than 80,000, we're not going to give platelets to those folks. And then from a disposition standpoint, we really want these kids going to a transfer specialty center for peds, right? Once you stabilize them, right? You don't want them to be unstable in the back of an EMS rig. You'd like to stabilize them before shipping. As many as 60 to 80% of patients will actually require a PICU admission. So, John, do you want to wrap this up and bring us home? Yeah, guys, this was an awesome summary. And I think I definitely learned a couple of big things, you know, just from this discussion. I think the first thing is differentiating this between a common disease that we're more familiar with, which is Kawasaki's and looking for those key differentiators on history, such as GI symptoms. I think that's much more common in MIS-C. And then as far as the lab testing, those inflammatory markers seem to be much higher as well as the thrombocytopenia in MIS-C compared to Kawasaki's certainly going to get my echocardiogram to, you know, not only to differentiate the pathophysiology that you mentioned, Peter, but also look for some of those key cardiac findings as I'm worried about this patient who's sick in front of me. And lastly, making sure I have IVIG available and that unlike adults where we're using, you know, dexamethasone on pretty much everybody who's a little bit hypoxic, maybe reserving that and talking with my specialists to get a consult before thinking about glucocorticoid therapy. And then just as with the ICU patients, I think we're at least at Penn, we're not providing therapeutic anticoagulation for our critically ill patients. That seems to be the case for kids as well, unless they have evidence of clot or low EF or aneurysm. So those are all great teaching points. And kind of circling back to where we started, thankfully, Miss C, this is a very rare condition and our kids have been 
maybe touched gently by COVID compared to our adult population. So while this isn't common, this was a great review. I appreciate you guys going through it with me and something to keep in my back pocket in case a sick kid does come in. Thanks, John, for leading us through this discussion. Outstanding, outstanding job. Great, great pearls. And to that end, I heard someone say this past week that, you know, we're in a better place with COVID now than we were last holiday season. We've got a lot more people. We've got vaccinations, you know, say in terms of just that new approach to defeating the pandemic. And we've got additional therapeutics. And we don't anticipate that we're going to see that large spike that we saw last holiday season. But having said that, COVID's not gone. And if there is a fifth wave that's starting to emerge, we'll see. And hopefully by next podcast, we'll be able to say, well, maybe that plateaued. So more to come on that, but it's not gone. And so this is still out there and and still can affect our kids. And so we need to know how to pick out the sick kid who has missed C. I think the one last pearl that I might drop is that get help. Call your pediatric colleagues, your PICU, the specialty support center. I know that you've mentioned stuff that you're doing at Penn. At Maryland, we have a central transfer center where we have a dedicated pediatric consultation for our sick patients out there with COVID across our entire network. And so our pediatricians, our pediatric intensivists want to know about these kids and help our community physicians really manage them and ultimately get them, as Peter said, transferred into the medical center PICU to continue their care. So really great points, great pearls. And on behalf of all of us, all four of us want to extend once again, a true and sincere thank you to all of you for what you've done over the last 20 to 21 months, what you've continued to do even before COVID and during COVID, and still as we continue to fight this pandemic together, we are immensely grateful for all that you're doing, regardless of provider, RN, APP, as I mentioned at the beginning. We've got staffing struggles. We've got lots of crises across our nation, but together we continue to march forward and get through this. And we wish you nothing but the best for this holiday season. We've got a few more podcasts to go before we wrap up 2021. And we're hopeful that you will join us next month in December for some additional EM critical care and resuscitation education. So on behalf of Peter, Rob, John, and myself will go ahead and close this podcast out, wishing you nothing but the best here for this Thanksgiving holiday weekend, and we will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.